So we have just landed in Tapachula and it could not be more different than Juarez. It's Saturday, January 11th, 2020. And I've just landed in a small airport in Tapachula on Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. Literally, we went from the northernmost border of, in Mexico to the southernmost border. We crossed the entire country of Mexico. I checked my phone. No messages. Inside the airport, I rushed to baggage claim. I'm recording just in case he's outside. I don't see anybody. I look at every young man I pass, hoping he'll be here, waiting for me. He's nowhere. Taxi, buenas tardes. Oh my God, this, all I was hoping for was that he would be here. And he's not. He's just not. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. On today's episode, The Moving Border, Part 2, The South. In our last episode, we reported about how the real wall that Trump has built is a paper wall, a wall of policies that push asylum seekers out of the U.S. and into Mexico. We visited the northern border and met some of the migrants stuck waiting for the chance to ask for asylum in the U.S., a place they believe they'll find safety. Now I've come to Tapachula on Mexico's southern border. It's another city filled with asylum seekers from all over the world. I'm here to find out why so many migrants are waiting here, almost 2,000 miles away from the United States. And there's another reason. I'm here to meet up with a 23-year-old Honduran migrant named Josue, whose story I've been following for a year now. We plan to meet up here, but for the last few days, Josue hasn't picked up his phone. I'm going to call him right now. I don't even know what to say. It's a weird feeling, honestly, to be so anxious to see him because I don't really know this kid. I met him a year ago in Matamoros when I was interviewing migrants for a story about life at the U.S.-Mexico border. He was my son's age at the time, just 23, and he was sleeping under a bridge. To see him alone in those conditions, it got to me. We spoke for like maybe two minutes and I gave him my card, just like I usually do with people I meet. But this kid, he actually called again and again. One of those calls came from a detention center in Texas. It was his second attempt to get to the U.S., Josue presented himself and asked for asylum at the border. He told officers he feared for his life if he was returned to Honduras, that he had been threatened by the gangs. Even though Josue passed his first credible fear interview, ultimately he was deported back to Honduras anyway. 
Josue then moved back in with his grandmother, the closest thing he still has to a parent. His mother died of cancer while he was in detention. But he didn't stay in Honduras long. Soon, he was back on the road north again, this time with his grandma in tow. He crossed back into Mexico, and last time we spoke, he was here in Tapachula. He told me he was petitioning for asylum here. And this was the first time I heard about this new strategy, migrants hoping to reach the United States by first applying for asylum in Mexico. And it turns out this is increasingly common because traveling to the northern border without legal documents has gotten harder and harder since Mexico has ramped up its own immigration enforcement. We'll talk more about that later. Right now, I'm determined to find Josue. After being in touch for so long, this was the chance for me to finally really hear his story. And though I've spent a lot of time in Mexico, this place, Tapachula, is completely new to me. So I'm going to need some help. Outside of the airport, I meet up with a local journalist named Benjamin Alfaro. He's going to be helping me to report this story. Bueno, Benjamin, ¿qué onda? What's up? ¿Hablas inglés, Benjamin? Uh, no. <laughs> no. In the car on the way to the hotel, I get a first glimpse of Tapachula. Oh my God, the humidity is 110%. And it is beautiful and sweaty and like in the tropics and it's so green. Aquí a mi izquierda estamos pasando algunos eh, árboles cultivos de mango ataulfo. As we drive past fields of mangos, plantains, and coffee, Mejamin says there's a saying here about the fertility of this land. Throw a seed on the ground, it'll grow. That's why there have always been so many migrants here, he tells me. Like Mexican farm workers in the United States, for decades, he says, Mostly Guatemalans have crossed the border to work seasonally in the fields here. In recent years, large numbers of migrants heading towards the United States have landed in Tapachula. The majority are from Central America, but there is also a growing number of people from Haiti, India, and West Africa. Mexicans like Benjamin, who grew up here, are for the most part used to people coming and going. And Tapachula is not a small town. The official count says the city has about 300,000 residents. But counting migrants, there's probably tens of thousands more. As we arrive at my hotel, I ask Benjamin to do me a favor and try calling Josue from his phone. 1121. ¿Cómo se llama ahora? Josue. Josue. Estamos llamando a Josue. Órale. No entra la llamada. And nothing. So I go down to the hotel restaurant to have dinner, but I can't help but think about a question Benjamin asked me. So he just heard me say what, what's happened with Josue, and we're kind of thinking that he's just like, it is strange that he disappears the day before you're coming. You know, is there a potential that he's being kidnapped, extorted because he's been in communication with someone from the United States? I mean, we have no idea. It may sound like a stretch, but maybe it isn't. And that's because Josue has already been a victim of crime here in Tapachula. 
It was last year, after his grandmother had given up on migrating and left to go back to Honduras. ¿A dónde te iba a llevar? One day, Josue says he and three other Honduran guys were picked up near his shelter by a man who said he had a job for them at a ranch. Josue said he needed the money, so he jumped at the chance to work. On the way, Josue says they were told that actually they were being hired to kill someone. It sounds like a story straight out of a movie. Josue says he was able to jump out of the truck and flee. And then he saw the news. Investiga Fiscalía enfrentamiento que dejó a tres personas muertas en Tapachula. Three men had been found dead inside a truck. Graphic photos of men with blood dripping down their faces flashed on the screen. Josué believes the men were the other Hondurans he was looking for work with. A month later, Josué says he was robbed while selling donuts in the street. He filed a police report and also gave a statement about what happened the day he jumped out of the truck. Shortly after, Josué had to leave the shelter to make space for new arrivals. Without legal documents to work and completely alone in Tapachula, he ended up living on the street. And that's where he still was the last time we spoke, just a few days ago. The last thing he said to me was that he was afraid someone would kill him. It is 9-12 on Saturday, January 11th, and we just finished dinner here in Tapachula. All I do is I look out into the night and I'm like, where is this kid? Where is this kid? That's all I'm asking myself. How did he disappear? And why did he disappear the day before I get here? I try one more time and nothing. He's gone. And um, <laughs> I'm going to have to try and find this guy in a city that I've never been to, where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Central American migrants, Honduran young men in their 20s, just like him. And now I've got to find him. Coming up, Benjamin and I go looking for Josue. Stay with us, no te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp.
hey, we're back. So the next morning, Benjamin and I set off to see if we can find clues as to Josue's whereabouts. We visit key spots for migrants around Tapachula, which gives me a chance to understand what migration looks like here on the southern border. So I'm just fascinated because we have now walked. I guess we're going to go up these stairs and we're going to see the river. But there's like a mural painted on these stairs and it says, Welcome, bienvenidos to Paso El Coyote. Welcome to the El Coyote crossing. First, we go to see the Suchiate River. And that's the river that separates Mexico from its southern neighbor, Guatemala. So there is a legal and a less legal way to cross this border. The actual international bridge and official port of entry is visible from where I'm standing. It's less than a mile down. But this unofficial crossing is the more popular one. We watch as people ride across the river into Mexico on makeshift rafts. And on top of big inner tubes, like you've got two huge inner tubes, you've just got planks of wood. So the most basic kind of transportation. They mostly seem to be students and workers. Others cross to Mexico to do their shopping. After all, there is a Walmart in Tapachula. Here and there, though, tired-looking young men with backpacks hop on, alone and in small groups. So one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about as I'm standing on this river between Guatemala and Mexico is, is this where Josue crossed? Then I see a well-dressed older man in khakis and a pink polo shirt board a raft from the Guatemalan side. He's holding a briefcase and he almost seems out of place. Ustedes dirán, a ver, ¿y usted de dónde es? De Guatemala. ¿Y ahora qué viene a hacer? Soy maestro, soy docente y vengo a dar clases acá Tapachula. His name is Freddy. He's Guatemalan, 60 years old. He works in Mexico as a teacher and says he crosses to Tapachula on a raft because it's easier and faster than the official crossing. ¿Y por qué cruzó por el, la balsa en vez de eh, porque hay veces que se dificulta un poco la pasada? ¿En qué sentido? Un poquito de trabas, de que están va de exigir y de exigir y, y la gente, pues, transmigrantes se conoce. And you don't have a problem? He's quick to point out that no one bothers him because they kind of know who the locals are and he doesn't look like a migrant. ¿Pero en qué enseña? Aduanas. <laughs> what? Soy maestro de aduanas. Before we move on, I ask Freddy what he teaches. He says... Customs. You're a professor who teaches about border crossing and customs, but you're crossing in an illegal crossing. O sea, es chistoso. Pero es la realidad, pues. That's just how things are here in Tapachula, he tells me. Mexico's southern border has always been more relaxed than the one up north. Like the customs teacher, Freddy, most people who live around here don't think much of crossing back and forth, legally or not. But recently, this border has tightened up. That's due in part to the arrival of the Mexican National Guard, La Guardia Nacional. The National Guard is President López Obrador's new security force, which we mentioned last episode. It's the one that was created to help fight crime, but has been deployed to enforce immigration instead. 
In January, the National Guard made news at this crossing point when it scuffled with a big caravan making its way from Central America, using force on migrants and making mass arrests. Now, whatever you think of this so-called caravan, whether you see them as refugees or invaders, one thing is clear tonight. They're in a standoff right now with an army of Mexican federales and tensions are running high. It was another example of Mexico's president fulfilling his promise to the United States to crack down on migration. But today at the river, it doesn't really look like the National Guard is doing much. For close to an hour, we've watched people crossing illegally in rafts across the border, right in their line of sight. And then, a very official-looking, uniformed man approaches me. Maria? He writes my name down in a beat-up little notebook that he slips right back into his pocket. He tells me that his name is Sergeant Hernandez and that he's with the National Guard. So I ask him what exactly their role here is. He tells me their job is to support immigration agents. For the most part, he tells me, they don't really bother the Guatemalan citizens who cross back and forth daily. But they approach others and check their ID, looking for Haitians or Hondurans, for example. People like Josué. No los detenemos. En ningún momento nosotros los detenemos. A nosotros, a los migrantes, los rescatamos. Sí. Y ya al momento de rescatarlos, migración ya les da las opciones qué es lo que pueden hacer en nuestro país. He's quick to tell me that they don't detain migrants. They rescue them. He says they rescue them by turning them over to immigration so they can, quote, learn about their options in Mexico. So where do these rescued migrants go? Al siglo XXI, ahí es donde está el complejo. Sí, ahí se les da de comer, se les da las facilidades, sí, para tenerlos ahí. They're taken to a place where they can eat and rest, he says. It's called siglo XXI. Now, if you're imagining that siglo XXI is a shelter... You couldn't be more wrong. It's actually a huge immigrant detention center here in Tapachula. We decide to head there next. On our way, we come across an immigration checkpoint, much like the ones the Border Patrol sets up near the border in the United States. Okay, so we're driving through a checkpoint. There is, um, on the left side, a pickup truck with lights flashing. There is a... But we're not stopped. They wave us through. Behind us, though, a van is pulled over. Benjamin says these random militarized roadblocks have been popping up everywhere in recent years. And so has the military, with their pickups, masked soldiers, and automatic weapons. And they're not just here in Tapachula. They're on all the major roads leading out of the city. And they pop in and out along popular routes for migrants all the way to the northern border, including railroad tracks and bus stations. In fact, advocates say it's so hard now for asylum seekers to get to the U.S. border without being detained by some Mexican authority that many have been stuck here in Tapachula, hoping to get some kind of legal status that will make it easier to travel through the country. For years, Mexico mostly turned a blind eye to migrants transiting north. 
But now, with large caravans of migrants from Central America arriving and the news cameras that followed, pressure to stop the flow was increasing. Thousands of migrants marching north through Mexico, hoping to reach the U.S. President Trump calling it a, quote, national emergency, vowing to send in the U.S. military. In January of 2019, Mexico rolled out a humanitarian visa. The visa basically provided temporary legal status for one year, allowing migrants to work and, more importantly, travel legally. Mexico shutting down a fast-track program for temporary asylum, allowing migrants to stay in Mexico. But so many people applied for the humanitarian visa that the Mexican government ended the program in less than two weeks. When they brought it back just a couple of months later, the requirements were tightened so much it was now nearly impossible to get one approved. So the other option was to apply for asylum in Mexico, which more than 70,000 people did last year. Most of those applications have been filed here in Tapachula. Some of these applicants will choose to settle in Mexico. They realize that getting into the U.S. is just too hard now. But many seem to be applying with the hope that once they have legal status, they can use it to travel safely and make it to the U.S. border. And that's what Josue was doing here last time we spoke. The local refugee office is overwhelmed with applications. Right now, more than half of all cases have been pending for a year. In the time that asylum seekers wait for a resolution to their case, they're not allowed to leave Tapachula. They have to check in weekly or bi-weekly to keep their cases active. And in many cases, they're sent for some period of time to Siglo XXI, Tapachula's sprawling immigrant detention center. They wouldn't let us in to see the facility. So we're here now, climbing to get a better view from a nearby hill that overlooks it. Siglo XXI is the largest immigrant detention center in Mexico. It's where the National Guard sergeant told me that they send rescued migrants. From here, I see a large prison yard. Wow. Look how big it is. All you really see from here are, you know, the roof coverings, long, white. All I'm seeing is, like, I think a line of people. You know, if you didn't know any better, you would say, oh, well, it's a school with a very big yard. But then you realize that there's a watchtower, and that means that they are watching to make sure that nobody gets out. And there's a huge wall that goes all around it, so you clearly cannot climb out. Benjamin tells me the detention center is so overcrowded, it's supposed to house about 900 people, but up to 2,000 have been crammed together. He says that recently migrants leaked photos of people sleeping in the bathrooms, one on top of another. In April of 2019, more than a thousand migrants, including families with children, broke out of Siglo XXI after a dispute over lack of food, sanitation, and overcrowding. 
By the way, we reached out to President López Obrador's office, as well as to other senior members of his administration, for comment. Our requests were all denied. So far, I've seen the outskirts of Tapachula, but now we're finally heading into the city. I want to search for Josué in the central plaza, which is a place I knew he used to go to a lot. At the plaza, I'm surprised to see just how diverse Tapachula is. It's buzzing with live music and street vendors of all kinds. So we are um, in the plaza, the central plaza. There's a lot of activity. It's Sunday afternoon, which is when everybody comes to the plaza to get your shoes shined, to sit with your girlfriend, to have a cup of coffee or a drink. And there is some football game that is happening. I don't know anything about football, but there's a football game that's going on. So we um, are here to look and see what's going on. I meet a man from Haiti who approached me when he saw I had a microphone. He told me that he's been stuck here for months waiting for asylum. And the wait, he says, is far from easy. He says there are many Haitians here, families with four or five kids, and the parents can't work and don't have money for food or diapers. He's been here for five months, but he still doesn't have a work permit, so he's selling cold bottles of water in the plaza to support his family. There's nothing for him here in Tapachula, he tells me. He's trying to get to Tijuana. There, he hopes his family in the U.S. will be able to help him pay for a coyote to try and smuggle him across the border. Before I leave, I take out my phone and pull up a photo of Josué and ask him if he's seen him. ¿Tú has visto esta persona? ¿Tú conoces esta persona? No, yo no conozco, porque hay mucho que diferente aquí en la plaza. He says there are a lot of guys who could look like him here. In the end, I don't get anywhere. Later on, I stop by Albergue El Buen Pastor. It's a shelter that I know Josué lived in for a while. We've been following the case of a young man for many months now, and he was here. And I want to know if you recognize him. Él estuvo aquí. A ver si tú lo reconoces. Ah, sí. Can you tell me what you know about him? Cuéntame algo de él. No ha pasado de regreso. I don't find any clues as to his whereabouts here, but I do meet sister Olga, who says she remembers Josué, but hasn't seen him in a while. She's been running this house for migrants for decades. Sister Olga says she used to have an army of volunteers. Now, no one really shows up to help anymore. Hoy por hoy, ya no miramos esa gente particular que viene a ayudar. Ya no. Se convirtió en un tapachula muy racista, muy inhumano. Ya no quiere ver migrantes y todo mundo se queja. Ya no queremos migrantes. She says Tapachula is becoming more racist and inhumane, that everybody complains about wanting migrants gone. And it's not just here. The caravans used to be greeted all over Mexico by well-wishers handing out medicine, food, and water. But those days have passed. This is what an anti-migrant protest looks like 
in Mexico. There's anger and waving of Mexican flags and signs like this one, which translates to no to the invasion. Sister Olga says when migrants were just passing through here, maybe it was easier to be more compassionate. But now she says the asylum process keeps people stuck here. So they're in the plazas. They're lined up outside government buildings. They're sleeping in the streets. And Tapachula is in Mexico's poorest state, Chiapas. Resources here are limited, and migrants are an easy target for people to take out their frustrations. Now, without helping hands, to make ends meet at the shelter, Sister Olga has had to come up with a new plan. To support the shelter and themselves, the migrants take part in a donut baking and selling operation. For now, it's just enough to scrape by. The next morning at breakfast, my phone rings. It's a video call, finally, from Josué. That's coming up. Stay with us. No te vayas. getting around it. The coronavirus pandemic has upended everything. And daily decisions made by the White House and Congress will radically impact the human and economic toll. To keep up with the latest, join us on the NPR Politics Podcast. We'll cut through the noise and let you know what decisions are being made and how they affect you. Okay, we're back. At long last, I receive a video call from Josue. It's the first time I'm seeing his face since we met a year ago. En todo el tiempo, nunca te he visto desde que te, desde que te conocí. No te he visto. And after everything, it turns out he's not in Tapachula at all. He's back home in Honduras. Josué flips the camera on his phone and shows me. He's using the Wi-Fi at a cafe in Tegucigalpa, the capital. Josué tells me he left Tapachula the day before I arrived, that some guys had beat him up in the market and that he says he couldn't take it anymore. He was scared, always thinking that someone was right over his shoulder coming to punish him for filing that police report after he jumped out of that truck. 
or that the gangs he ran away from in Honduras would follow him here to Tapachula. After all, it's really close, and there are Central American gang tags on the walls all around town that I saw myself. In the end, Josue took off back to Honduras. The gangs were there too, but at least there he could stay with his grandmother instead of sleeping on the streets. But Mexican law says he must be present for in-person check-ins with immigration while his asylum petition is pending. So when Josue went to the asylum agency to let them know he was leaving, that meant his asylum case in Mexico would be closed. Three months waiting in Tapachula was for nothing. Later that day, I have a chance to meet with Alma Marquez. She's the head of the refugee agency here in Tapachula. It's called Comar. I want to know what kind of protections the Mexican government is supposed to offer to someone like Josue. You're a refugee. You're leaving your home country. And the place that is supposed to be giving you safe haven isn't able to protect you. Do you think those people should continue to apply for refugee status in Mexico if they've been a victim of a crime in Mexico? Or really, should they then be, by international law, allowed to apply to another country? Si tú eres víctima de un delito en México, pues tendrás eh, tu derecho de interponer tu denuncia y de acudir a las autoridades correspondientes para que ellos se hagan cargo. Alma says anyone who is a victim should just go to the police. Plus, she says... There's a process to protect victims of crime. If Josue had told them before he left to Honduras that he was afraid, he might have been able to be transferred out of Tapachula. And then, in the middle of speaking with Alma, I get a call from Josue. No, Josue is calling. Well, actually, hold on a second. Uh, Josue. Huh? Estoy en Comar ahora mismo. We're talking about your case. When you came to close your case... Did you tell Comar why you were leaving? Josue says he did tell an official that his grandmother was worried about him because of what happened. And he says he showed the official the report that he had made with the police. He says no one ever mentioned the possibility of moving him somewhere safe elsewhere in Mexico. Like, that, like, what do you recommend to a young... He's like so many other Honduran men, right? His life is under threat. He's afraid all the time. He has people who have died all around him. He feels that he could be killed at any moment. We have to check the case because uh, I cannot give you right now my point of view of the case. And then Alma adds in Spanish... Y tengo 15 años de experiencia tratando con personas justo de Centroamérica. Puedo decir que los conozco. I've been doing this for 15 years, she says. Dealing with Central Americans, I know them well. You can't get stuck on one case. In the end, Josué may not have used the right words to trigger special protections. And it's hard to believe asylum policy sometimes comes down to just that, words. But even if he had... ¿Por qué? Porque acá concentramos el 65% de solicitantes. Y 
los 65 podrían venir a decirnos, sabes que yo me quiero reubicar. Entonces no vamos a reubicar a todos. Por Alma eso, says, 65% of all asylum seekers are here in Tapachula. They could all say they want to move to a different city. And it's not like she can move them all. The larger problem, Alma says, is Mexico's asylum system is sorely underfunded and understaffed. While the agency's budget was doubled from the year before, it's just a little over $2 million for 2020. And most of their financial support is coming from outside of Mexico. And we'll get into that a bit more later. By Mexican law, asylum claims are supposed to be resolved in 55 days, not over a year. Last year, the agency only ended up granting refugee status to less than 2,000 people from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, even though more than 70,000 applications were submitted in total. If we zoom out for a second, the reason Josué found himself seeking asylum here in Tapachula in the first place, instead of the United States, where he hoped to eventually make it, is because Mexico has been developing itself as an asylum destination. You could say an alternative to the U.S. And that's in part because Mexico is getting help and encouragement to do this, both from the United States and from the UNHCR. That's short for United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. We made our way to their office in Tapachula. Okay, so we are standing, we're kind of in a residential neighborhood in uh, Tapachula. So far away from downtown, corner building here with high security. There's a camera out front. There's some, you know, razor, not razor wire, but there's wiring around. And it says in all white, and it says UNHCR, ACNUR, La Agencia de la ONU para los Refugiados, the United Nations Agency for Refugees. There are no lines here or asylum seekers waiting outside. It almost feels like this place is out of their reach. Now, the UNHCR was created after World War II to make sure that what happened then would never happen again. Jews who tried to escape the Holocaust were denied entry to almost every country in the world. Many were famously turned back only to meet their deaths. So this international agency's mission is to protect refugees and asylum seekers. Today in Mexico, it works with the government to come up with systems to process and admit asylum seekers. And they have a $60 million budget this year to contribute to Mexico's efforts. Today, we're here to meet with Giovanni Lepri. He's the deputy representative with UNHCR in Mexico. I told him the details of Josue's case to get his take on why Josue didn't receive any kind of special protection. This looks like one of the real genuine cases in which the person that you're describing have all the, 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 the reason and, and, and the right to have an alternative to move somewhere else. In that sense, I think that it's appropriate to say that it did somehow fell into the cracks. And unfortunately, probably is not the only one. 
Giovanni says, while they've made progress, there's still a long way to go in getting the asylum system to work the way it should. I wanted to know more broadly why UNHCR was here in Mexico specifically. Each and every country should be a country where there are opportunities for people that are in need of international protection. I think that Mexico is today one of the countries that could offer opportunities and possibility for uh, integration of refugees much better than many, many other countries that we would put as the top developed country in the world. Uh, The fact that um, employment, there is plenty of opportunity, there are plenty of opportunities. The migrants we spoke to in Tapachula might disagree about that notion of plenty of opportunity in Mexico for them. Giovanni says the UN is just trying to help. But there's a question of whether diverting migrants from making it to the United States by giving them a chance to stay in Mexico is actually helping them. Yes, Mexico is a larger and more prosperous country than the Central American nations, but it suffers from many of the same issues around safety as the places migrants are escaping from. Take Josue's case. At various points, he was homeless, unable to work, hungry, and nearly killed here. Is this what safety looks like for him? And it turns out there's a word for what's happening here in Mexico, because it's part of a global trend called externalization. Externalization, where states are gradually pushing their borders outwards uh, and making it increasingly impossible for refugees and asylum seekers to even reach the territory of the world's most prosperous states. This is Jeff Crisp. We reached him in London. He spent many years as a higher up at the UNHCR. Since leaving, he's been highly critical of the organization. And externalization, he says. And this is uh, a global trend in the industrialized world. Uh, It's a policy being pursued by the United States, by the European Union, uh, and by Australia. It's also happening, for example, in Libya, where the European Union is funding the local government to intercept migrants at sea and put them in detention in dismal conditions. And in Australia, where asylum seekers have been sent to camps on remote Pacific islands. It means migrants are being corralled into poor countries where they aren't necessarily better off than where they started. And Jeff says the UNHCR is in a tough position to do anything about it, in part because of the source of its money. It's become increasingly constrained in recent years as um, governments have pursued more restrictive refugee and asylum policies. Um, And one of my arguments has been recently that uh, UNHCR is very worried about losing U.S. support, and the U.S. provides around 40% of the organization's budget. Partly, I would argue, because UNHCR depends so heavily on the U.S. for its funding. Um, It's been very wary, in my opinion, of actually going out in public and criticizing the policies pursued by Donald Trump.
It's the first week of March now. I'm back in New York City, and I get a call from Josue. I can't believe what he tells me. He's decided to go back to Mexico. He's leaving in just a few days. He's headed back to Tapachula. And then, right before he's about to make the trip... WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we're deeply concerned. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Mexico and Guatemala, like many other countries around the world, announced they might close their borders due to the coronavirus pandemic. But virus or not, on the second week of March, Josue hitchhiked back to Tapachula, making it out of Guatemala just before it closed its borders. Once in Tapachula, Josue went and got a meeting at Comar, the refugee office. He records it on his phone. He says he wants to reopen his case. But they tell him bad news. They say that the document he signed when he left in January means he abandoned his case and that if he wants to apply for asylum, he needs to start over. The process, they say, could take another year, another year of waiting in Tapachula. Josue says his desperation is growing. With lockdowns in place, there's no work. And that means no food. Sometimes he has to skip meals. And he's on the verge of being homeless again. And then he hears that the refugee office is going to be closed through June. That wait he was dreading, it keeps on extending. Comar is closed, so his paperwork just sits there, much like he does, waiting. How long do you think you'll stay in Mexico? Uno, cuatro años. Cuatro años. Sí. O si es posible, menos. He says now he's thinking he'll ultimately stay in Mexico for a while maybe four years or less, if possible, if he can get to the United States, where he really wants to be. ¿Qué significa? Tú dices, yo quiero ir al norte para ir a los Estados Unidos. Y yo digo, ¿y qué tanto significa los Estados Unidos para ti? Ah, para mí los Estados Unidos es que ahí le ayuda mucho a uno. Y ahí, ahí me puedo, en los Estados Unidos me puedo superar. I ask Josué, what does getting to the United States mean to him? And he says, a chance to do better in life. Josue has now made four attempts to make it to the United States and spent years of his life, all to end up here in Tapachula with nothing to show for it. He's happy to be alive is about all he can say.
just recently, I get another message from Josue. He's a little bit desperate. He tells me he's feeling sick with a high fever, cough, and body aches, and he can't find any medical help. He's wondering if maybe it's the coronavirus. But after all he's gone through, a deadly virus is just another addition to his long list of fears. This episode was produced by Julieta Martinelli and myself with field production from Fernanda Camarena and Benjamin Alfaro and help from Isabella Cota. It was edited by Marlon Bishop. The Moving Border series was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center with additional support provided by the Ford Foundation. The series executive producer is Diane Sylvester. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Palizacá, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoka, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help this week from Raúl Pérez and Juan Diego Ramírez. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcántara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. Stay safe. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Ford Foundation. Working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. And funding for Latino USA's coverage of a culture of health is made possible in part by a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation.